Emotionally available means being open to what our body can do. Being excited about all the ways that we can move, whether it be in fitness or yoga or dance or just everyday life. We're gonna love our bodies and be really proud of ourselves every day. Sometimes it's not about having high expectations or low expectations of ourselves. It's just about having no expectations and being really thankful and excited every single day about little small things we do. I'm in the car and this is Deanna. And on my commute to work, I wanna talk about all things emotionally available, what that means to me, and how it might apply to your dance, fitness, or movement goals. I'm so excited you're with me today. We'll be right back. and you're listening to the Emotionally Available Podcast. Welcome. We are chatting in the car. I hope you're having a great day. And I want to tell you all a little bit about myself today. And I know that it's a personal podcast, so <laughs> obviously um, I talk to talk about myself and my thoughts. But I think sometimes when we have to share our story, so what's actually happened to us, versus just our emotional feelings on things, it's a little bit different, so I really look forward to diving in a little bit more about my story, um, where Emotionally Available came from, from my own experiences, um, and of course share with you my ideas and thoughts about them. But I don't know about you, when I discuss how I feel about something or an opinion, um, it feels a little bit more guarded. Um, I can just kind of tell you my opinion, and um, I don't necessarily have to explain why, um, I really want to tell you all why today. I want to tell you my story. I think when you share a story, it's very raw because it tells an exact experience. When I share my opinion with someone, um, they don't know why I have that opinion. So if they disagree with my opinion, I don't feel quite so vulnerable. I don't know about you. I'd love to know what you what you think. So when you share opinions versus the stories with others, um, does one or the other feel more vulnerable, and, and why? Um, so definitely send me a message on Facebook or Instagram, comment on the podcast. I'd really like to know why. I definitely feel like telling stories is a little bit more vulnerable. Um, yeah, because they're really the root. They're the root of the opinions. Um, they're where they came from, and they feel very intimate. So I want to tell you all um, where my emotionally available thought process and lifestyle came from. So I grew up from a pretty athletic family. My mom uh, was a huge track and cross-country runner. She was just very, very talented. Um, my dad uh, played basketball um, and was very, very good. <laughs> um, he um, and my mom definitely could have had college um, careers or professional careers um, should they have gone that route, and from a really young age, they just kind of kept me moving, so my mom would go on her runs, uh, let's say she went to go run in eight miles or whatever, and so then she would tell me that she'd come pick me up for the end of the run, now really, it wasn't the end of the run, <laughs> she had already ended her run, and she was going to let me cool down with her, um, which her cool down, um, felt like forever for me, and it was fun, she made running fun, um, 
everything athletic was just fun. Um, no one... No one made me feel like it was a workout. Um, it wasn't a task. It was like a, oh, let's go do this thing. And it's cute because occasionally we would, like, I don't know, run to the corner store and get a treat and then run back. Um, so in a sense, it made running the treat. Um, so it became kind of a privilege and an activity um, to exercise, which was really, really cool. Um, also, as a child, we would ride bikes a lot. Um, I was fortunate to grow up in a, a super, super busy um, family neighborhood, so there was always kids to run around with and ride bikes with, and that was really cool. Now, my dad and I were the excursion people, so we would decide that we were like, okay, this month we're going to learn how to play tennis. And, of course, I was little. Let's say, you know, these are memories from before the age of 12. And... He would then teach me how to play tennis, and that was going to be our thing for the next few Saturdays. Um, or we would rock climb, and that would be our thing for the next few Saturdays. And while my dad um, was obviously my instructor, because he was the adult and I was the child, I was very certain, and my dad is very athletic, but I was 100% certain that my dad was an expert in every single one of these physical activities we ever did. And as a child, that's like, I don't know, you can't really replace that feeling of um, understanding or, or thinking that your parent is like the king or queen of the universe in whatever they're talking about. Um, so I have like really fond memories of being taught how to do all these different activities and sports from my dad. And um, really knowing that he was the best. <laughs> um, that's kind of magical. And same thing with my mom. Like, she was, like, the runner. That's what she was. And that's who she was, and that's who I wanted to be. So from a young age, exercise and athletics were um, a really big priority in our family. Um, I always did rec soccer, recreational basketball. Um, I would do the, the little recreational summer swim team league. But my first love was ballet, and I was walking downtown in our hometown with my dad, and we stumbled across a dance studio, looked in the window, and I said, oh, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> and um, much to my mother's um, excitement or dismay, I'm not sure because it's a rather expensive hobby, um, my dad came home and told her that we were going to do ballet now, <laughs> and I had fallen in love. So ballet was my first hobby. Um, I started, I think, at three, and that was really, really magical. I, I went to a pretty strict dance school or ballet academy um, for most of my um, childhood. So I really enjoyed the structure, the calmness, the formality. Um, I think also I was a very nervous and anxious and quiet child to some degree. Um, so this really fit me well. Um, I currently teach at a dance studio that is a more jack-of-all-trades studio, and it's very warm and happy, and um, there's a playfulness and a silliness about the studio, and I definitely think I would have danced longer had I been at a studio like the one I was at now, um, but I know that for me at a very young age, um, yeah, I had this really formal experience and environment, and I, I liked it a lot. I thrived. So just a good example of how there's so many different kinds of dance studios in general. And I'd love to tell you more about my current um, studio where I work because I think it's really unique and special. But anyway, so I'm a ballerina. Um, I, I love dancing. And I get to the point 
um, I think in kindergarten where I start horseback riding, which is a whole new set of muscles to train. I then went on to ride for collectively almost a decade, um, and that was really amazing. But you ride in parallel. <laughs> you do not ride in turnout. <laughs> um, not really. So that was, like, really, really challenging for me as a ballet dancer to use both of those muscles at different times. And actually, it was kind of the end of my ballet career at some point. So once I hit, I think it was like 11, um, my ballet academy started getting really strict. We had to dance like five days a week if we wanted to go into pre-point. And I remember I always did both seasons. We had two out of the year. And some kids, especially as elementary kids, would only do one of the seasons so they could be involved in something else. Um, I was just psycho and wanted to be involved in everything (laughs) so I always did the full year two seasons and for the first time I took a season off and um, part of me is like bummed now in the future um, with that decision and I'll tell you why but the other part of me is like no that was right for me as a kid so I take a season off um, really just because I wanted to I don't know (laughs) have play dates (laughs) do like my friend's birthday party on a Friday evening at the age of 11, and from that point on, when I went back, I had to double up my class schedule, so now I had to dance even more to try to kind of make up that pre-point time, and it just wasn't for me. Um, I do not have strong turnout, even now as a dance teacher. Um, what I think is strong, of course, we all have different opinions, but I think over overall I have very average turnout. Um, there's nothing, (laughs) there's nothing anywhere near 180 in any position. Um, but I think that was one, maybe because I took a season off, but more just because I wasn't really built for it. Um, I think me as a, as a personality and a human and a, my brain is structured like a ballet dancer, but my body (laughs) is very attractive to me, but my body is is not, (laughs) my body is not really a ballet dancer as far as, um, from the waist down. So I um, kind of taper off dance, so I continue to take dance a little bit here and there. Um, if you figured it out, I never went on point, and I never have, um, which is really interesting. Um, as a ballet dancer and teacher, I think that I've lived a successful career without ever going on point. Um, and that's actually a really cool angle I'll talk to you about in the future. Uh, and I tell, my, I tell my kids all the time in dance class, so I go on to um, ride longer, and also I become of the age where in middle school I can start running competitively. Um, obviously, my mom had been an amazing runner, and she had kind of instilled the love of running um, from a young age. And so I was going to go ahead and join the track team, um, and then the track and fall cross-country team. And then eventually I would do the indoor, outdoor, and cross-country team. So even in middle school, I got really, really competitive, and I was actually lucky enough to qualify for the Junior Olympics um, in track, and we did make it to nationals. We couldn't go there because of, like, a timing issue with my, like, little squad, Um, but yeah, I was really, really fortunate to have, like, training right away. Um, I had a coach um, who was just perfect for me at the time, Um, and really, really inspiring to that middle school age. Um, and really, really encouraging um, and smart, good, good coach. I went on to go to high school, and I was a varsity athlete, cross-country, indoor track, outdoor track, all um, 
every season. Um, I was captain for a number of them in my upper class years. Um, and I realized that I was definitely a top runner in the county. Um, and I was I was ranked All-State, but I was not um, a top All-State runner. But I really loved it. And this was my whole life. Junior year, I came down with patella tendonitis, and I felt like my whole life was ending. Um, I also suffer from seasonal affective disorder to some degree. Um, uh, my pediatrician diagnosed me with this. Um, I never saw a counselor really for it, um, so I've been to counseling for other reasons, and I think therapy is so valuable. Um, and unfortunately, I kind of got diagnosed, and then this time that I was in recovery and doing treatment and physical therapy hit over the winter, and that was devastating. I, I for the first time, felt really out of place, and I watch the teenagers now going through injuries at my dance studio, and my heart just breaks for them. When you've built your whole identity as an adult or a child or a teenager around a certain activity or a thing, and then you don't have that thing anymore, it is, it is pretty... Pretty, it feels pretty earth-shattering. So I, I am able to heal. I come back and have a stellar comeback season, and um, I decided that I want to run the cross-country in college. Um, I actually told myself that in fifth grade. I told myself in fifth grade I would run in college. I was going to be a college athlete. <laughs> so um, you can imagine that um, to some degree that was kind of like my light at the end of the tunnel. Like I have to heal um, during my injury so I can run in college. So I do go on to run in college. I ran for a D2 school, and I really loved running, <laughs> and I really, really injured myself again. So tendonitis um, really, it does heal and go away, but once you've had tendonitis, you're always prone to split back in. So running was forever going to be um, a little bit dangerous for me. I actually only ran one season of cross country um, at my first college, and I had to make the decision to stop. So I probably could have kept running, but I remembered back to my junior year of high school when I what it felt like to be injured and actually be told by a doctor to stop. Um, and so I made the decision freshman year, first <laughs> first semester of college. Um, to take myself out of the game, essentially, and I, I was devastated, but I think there was some amount of control there that I didn't have when I, you know, three years prior, or two years prior, um, and I just remember getting out of my bed at 5 a.m., there was six days a week practice, and thinking, oh my God, I am in such pain, oh my goodness, how am I going to play with my children at 40 if I feel like I can barely get out of bed at 18 or 19? I, and I, for the first time, I was not focused on just getting back to running or getting the life I had, like I felt in high school, and I was thinking long-term and health for my body and how am I going to be moving and be in motion for the rest of my life? Um, this was now the second time I was I was majorly coping with this injury, and I thought to myself, I, I can't be in this place again, so I need to do something else. And I called my parents. Um, I had already decided I was going to leave that school, um, not because I didn't like it, just because I figured if I wasn't going to run for them, I might as well at least 
opened my eyes to other school options because I had chosen that school. You know, probably 70% of my decision-making was due to the fact that I was going to run on their team. And so I called up my parents and was like, well, I'm going to transfer. <laughs> and this is happening. And I really hadn't spoken to them about um, how bad my pain had gotten. I think I'd mentioned it, of course. It was kind of always a lingering issue. Um, but I hadn't really discussed quite how unhappy I was. And I was really proud of myself for for thinking about how my movement um, and my choices now were going to affect my movement later in life. Uh, and thank God I did. It was, it was I'm, I can honestly say in the most humble way possible, I'm so proud of myself. Um, I look back and, like, look at younger me, and I'm like, oh, pat on the back, girl. Good job. <laughs> but it was really hard. So I, uh, I get to my, my second school, NC State. I've already spoken about it uh, in, another, in another episode. And I realized that I actually could be athletic. I just couldn't do the repetitive forward motion. So I joined a modern dance company. I had never done modern. <laughs> I had only done ballet, and part of me thought that, like, ugh, jazz, like, doesn't stand up to ballet. Hip-hop, eh, not formal enough. Um, but I really had never, so, like, other styles weren't really open to me, or I wasn't open to them in general growing up. Um, and then running took over my life, so I didn't bother trying anything else really but ballet. So I get to I get to NC State and I decide that I'm done with the shackles of my injury, um, any limitations I've put on myself willingly um, to be a runner, and I'm going to now do everything possible to try everything new. So I tried out for a modern dance company, which I'd love to speak to you more about in a future episode. Um, and I made it, which is weird because I'd never done modern. So good job, young college Diana. Um, but I think my willingness to try really, really spoke to the director. So that was an amazing experience. I was in that company for all four years of college. Um, we not only did uh, modern, true modern, uh, like I, our true modern was like a, a Horton-based modern, um, but we did all sorts of other experimental modern. We did um, postmodern. We brought in jazz choreographers, African choreographers, um, Indian dance choreographers, and it was a really well-rounded dance education. Um, and in school, I also took ballet and modern classes uh, through the gym, which was really, really, really cool. So I realized that I could move, I just couldn't run. So I was like, okay, so what can I do next? I went ahead and joined the lacrosse team, um, and that was really fun. I was really, really fast, but because it was short sprints, um, because it was a lot of moving side to side rather than just forward, I strengthened a lot of muscles I hadn't previously, and I could actually be primarily pain-free on the cross-country field, excuse me, on the lacrosse field. Um, I then <laughs> was tempting fate a little further and joined the rugby team. Now, both lacrosse and rugby were club sports, but when you're at a D1 school, even the club sports are pretty competitive, so I really was feeding that competitive need. So at one point I was dancing, doing cross, and rugby all at once, and I was like, this is awesome. And for, like, the first time in my life, I don't think I thought of the term emotionally available, but I was, like, super emotionally available. I was, like, ready to accept and bring on whatever thing sounded fun and I could physically do. Um, I, 
definitely tapered off. <laughs> Eventually, lacrosse fell off my task list, and then rugby did. But dance stayed the whole time, and it was really, really amazing. So I really um, feel fortunate that I was able to have, like, a single um, exercise thing, right? It was dance, and then it was running, and then it was let's do everything. Um, so that's really where my experience of being emotionally available comes from. Um, it definitely came from pain, giving up ballet because um, of physical restrictions, and then giving up running because of injury restrictions, um, and then realizing that there was this whole world. And I don't think I was ready to be open to all those exciting new possibilities in sports early on. Um, I, I was too focused, and, and that was a good thing. But I was ready once I got to college. And then after college, that inspiration to just try everything um, and during college got me to become a yoga instructor, encouraged me to get my Zumba certification. And I was like, oh, there's like a whole world that I could make a life of moving and not getting caught up. Because I had already taught myself in my life that you don't need to stick to one thing. There is life after injury. There is life after um, choosing to quit an activity. Um, I think I gained more experience quitting activities than I did trying new activities, um, there really ends up being one and the same experience because you realize that there's infinite options for, for you. And just like that little 18-year-old um, laying in her college twin bed trying to wake up at 5 a.m., stepping onto her floor and being in excruciating pain um, in my knee, I wanted a life that I was going to be in motion forever. Um, and I And I think I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> or I think I'm on my way, and I'm so, so happy. So um, I think it's really, really important in general to be available to every option you have. There's not one way to exercise. There's not one way to do yoga. There's not one way to become in a dance company in college. There's not one way to become a college athlete. There's not one way um, to become a dance teacher, to become a yoga instructor, to try something new. There just isn't. Um, and I think that I could criticize myself and be like, oh, you're just so all over the place, um, because I never really knew what I wanted to do growing up, and I'd love to talk to you more about some of the goal setting I had and, and where, what career I thought I'd be in and the career I'm in now, which is very different, um, but I look at my life and I'm like, oh my gosh, Yana, maybe you had no direction, you were just all over the place once you got to college, and then I think no, you are open, you are available to every opportunity, and that is so cool. Um, I think that you have to kind of stop and then let life wash over you and almost like a little filter, decide what you need. Um, and that's not being passive. I think some people are passive and just let life happen, and then they're like, okay, cool, I guess I can be happy with that. But I think when you're available... It's just more about accepting. It's more about thinking, wow, here's all these things that are happening, and I'm going to do it, rather than forcing your way um, towards things you might not even know you wanted. For example, I, 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 I forced myself to be a college athlete, and it was well worth it, and it was one of the best things I did, but there's so many other best things I've done since then that just happened simply because I had my eyes open, I was hungry and available for the next opportunity. Um, because of these experiences, 
That's why I feel living emotionally available is so important. You're in motion. You're recognizing your emotions and feelings, how you feel now, how you want to feel. And then you are just available to all these amazing opportunities, whether that be in fitness, in your personal life. Um, and you move forward. Um, I feel so passionately about this, and um, I feel so fortunate to have had so many opportunities to find my way um, to this point and to whatever point I move to in the future. Um, there is no there is no end goal. And like in our very first welcome podcast, beginning is a constant state. You're always a beginner. You're always growing. Um, and you got to stay playful. you got to stay available.